0: Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, It is July 5th today, and we actually have a, we wanted to announce a bit of a scheduling change going forward, which is that up until now, this show has always come out Tuesday morning around like, I don't know, like 5 a.m. or something East Coast time, which uh, we we do a pre-scheduled thing, which I don't know. I feel like that type of thing doesn't, do people still, I don't think people like pre-schedule stuff anymore, except for us. We're like the only ones, right? <laughs> I'm like I love pre-scheduling emails. Stuff. <laughs> I've never pre-scheduled an email in my life. I don't know. We have a, uh, we have a uh, guest with us today. He's uh, Danny Bessner. Um, Danny, have you, we're going to introduce you properly in a second here, but have you ever Have you ever pre-scheduled an email? An email? No. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually can't remember
1: last time I did that now. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I ever did it, actually. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done it either. Yeah. Um, but some it, people do. Academics do do that. I, I know there yeah, are people who do that. do that. But not not me. I live by the seat of my pants. Yeah, Terry,
0: why is it It's like an etiquette
2: thing because you don't want to, like, email people at, like, 1 a.m. on a holiday. So you try to look normal by scheduling it for, like, a few hours later. <laughs>
0: No, that was much less normal. <laughs> Someone emailed me at like 1 a.m., I'd be like, oh, yeah, they were just up. And if somebody was like, oh, I pre-scheduled pre-sched- an email to you and I somehow found out about it, I would never work with that person again. Like,
1: and also yeah. with COVID, everyone was like all over
0: the world, you know? I feel yeah, like times actually. were just like diluted. Right, right. I haven't um, done I- it in a while. Okay. Uh, Tammy, do you want to uh, introduce our esteemed guest today?
2: yes it's my pleasure to introduce my old pal danny busner we met um, in seattle many years ago where danny is a professor of history at the university of washington Um, but danny has a bunch of different hats he's also a non-resident fellow at the quincy institute a foreign policy think tank we've mentioned on the show before and that we'll talk about and he co-hosts a fabulous podcast called american prestige which Jay and I have made brief appearances on. Um, Danny's book is Democracy in Exile, Hanspire and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Danny's an expert on how social scientists sort of infiltrated think tanks to work with government agencies to shape American foreign policy during the great American century. Um, And maybe Danny will talk a little bit more about his more recent projects later on, screenwriting, TV writing. Uh, He also has a Nirvana podcast in the works, which we're really excited about. So welcome, Danny
1: thanks guys first time long time
0: is it is it pro or anti-nirvana you're oh you're super pro i i think nirvana is like so awesome i think
1: they're the well they're the last rock band that will ever dominate pop culture like that 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 was that was kind came to an end with them so i i think that's it's an interesting moment wow. in music history for a variety of reasons and you know, it really embodies a lot of the postmodernism of the 1990s in a, in a real way. So I'm trying to, you know, take that angle as opposed to just retell the Kurt Cobain story once again.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Now it's like it seems like things that like, quote, dominate pop culture are just things that uh, not pop culture, but music in general. Like things where you hear it everywhere are just things that are come out of TikTok, you know. But that's not like real domination of it, because a lot of times it's just like stuff that's old. Like Kate Bush is like the best, the biggest music act in the world right now. For, and it's just like eight seconds of of running up the hill is like, you know, is it's not like a domination. <laughs> it's not like a moment, really. It's just like it's just a meme. Right. And um, it doesn't really mean anything. And I, I, get, I get somewhat like irritated when people sort of lecture old people like me on, on stuff like this and be like, you don't really understand me. like, no, I spend like 40 minutes a day on TikTok. I do understand TikTok. I just like, don't think that any of this matters. Like it, it strikes me as profoundly stupid that we're just like, you know. Kate Bush has had a comeback. We're like, has she? You know? No, there's, that... there's no mass culture anymore. Right, I mean, right. like it, it it happened to Cohen. the death of rock and roll
1: <clears throat> coincided with the last real moment of, of mass culture, I think. And it's an interesting phenomenon, um, for for that reason alone. And also it kind of traces the baby boomers
0: sort of rise and fall, and there's a lot of big themes that I'm trying to address at least. Right, right. I guess now it's like the album release has become this event that is also of incre- increasingly smaller significance, right? So I'd say like when Beyonce did uh, the album with, uh, with the surfboard song on it, I forget what the name of the album was, right? But it was like two albums ago and that it came like in the middle of the night, then everybody went crazy. And that was like a moment, right? And that was sort of like a new production type of thing. And they did that so that people wouldn't leak the album, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But um and that felt like it was an actually huge pop cultural moment right where you're just like all right you know this is big now it's like Coachella performances or whatever and i don't know and it it lasts
1: for a day i mean like neverminds released in late september and it only hits number one in january that's why like we have the image of the 90s with grunge is because it was only like really 18 to 24 months where grunge like truly dominated it's like i think 30 ish months between Nevermind's release and Kirk Cobain's suicide, which is like that moment, but it's so etched in our minds because there was an organic process of like growth, rise, fall, and death. Um, but nowadays, you'd, people talk about the Beyonce album for like a week or Stranger Things for a week and a half. You know, there's just nothing that has that resonance for a diversity uh, of reasons. But um, it, Nirvana, I think, in music was really the last time that that happened. Uh, people sometimes say the strokes
0: um yeah uh, yeah maybe but not feel, really yeah not in I the really same way so also that was so that was also so self-consciously um referential and nostalgic you know where it was like it we're just organic. gonna we're just gonna like create the brand television and we're gonna redo television you know and uh or whatever like right we're gonna do like a cooler version of television or whatever version whatever like reference you want to say but it's clearly like a fu- you had all these other bands like from you know like the hot i, I forget like the there are like five other bands. That the were, Hives, you were about to say. Yeah, the say. Hives, right, right, yeah. right. And like in some ways, the White Stripes, although that seemed like a the bit more stripes. creative, right? But yeah. um, but I think we should just,
2: also say where this is kind of like an American conversation because we have the proliferation of musical subcultures, but also like global sub- musical cultures that you know might be a sort of retort to this internationally, like I'm thinking about like reggaeton or like K-pop and the way that those function and the numbers that they pull in.
0: Oh, yeah, like and those bad baby. album yeah.
2: releases can be actually like can last quite a long time,
0: Tammy. Was that an attempt at a segue so that two dudes would stop talking about Nirvana?
2: No, I am also a fan and a Pacific Northwest <laughs> fan, also. But we, we you know, there's that. other All music right. guys. So we,
0: we did bring in Danny to talk about, um, to talk about U.S. foreign policy, I think a lot, but also the academy, and um, you know, you published an essay in harper's uh what it was this month right or um oh oh jay not just an essay it was the cover story oh uh, okay <laughs> yes the cover story Harper, <laughs> the cover essay of harper's not just a mere essay i not only apologize jay, to you problem? i apologize to rick MacArthur and uh <laughs> the entire harper's <laughs> everybody works at harper's for my mistake here um yeah, I it was uh, you know, it it's about the American Century, right? After the American Century is the title of the um is a subtitle, but the the whole title is Empire Burlesque, What Comes After the American Century? This is a question that you post in the essay. I found it totally fascinating. Um and making a incredibly clear argument, which, you know, I think is somewhat rare. It's like something that I should do more, you know, like a lot of the stuff that I write is kind of like a You know, I kind of like do this shrug emoji. I'm just like, I don't know. You You can see it either way here, you know, but, you know, this is interesting. But like you're making a very clear argument here and taking of defining two sides and taking one very clear side. So, like, can you just tell us a little bit about like, you know, like, like why you wrote this essay and like what you felt like the moment was like, why is this a moment for like a big cover story about foreign policy?
1: No, it's a good question. Um, So just maybe to give a bit of background, from my perspective at least, U.S. foreign policy has been relatively consistent since around 1940, 1941, which is that it's been geared towards something that one could call a U.S. hegemony or or U.S. global empire or armed primacy, which is really a simple idea, is that the United States needs to dominate the world um, first through military means, which is why we presently have 750 military bases, and during the Cold War we had more, um, and also through economic means, which is why the dollar is the global reserve currency. Um, And this has been true even after the Soviet Union collapsed in, you know, between 1989 and 1991. If you go back and read, you know, Harper's or the New Republic or the National Interest from that time, people were claiming that this was a watershed moment in in history and things would change. Um, You know, you have Fukuyama arguing about the end of history and things like that. But really, things didn't change. It was just you kind of got the Cold War on steroids, right. which is you had the same people who were in literally who were formed, intellectually formed during the Cold War. A lot of the literal same policymakers um, just basically doing the U.S. strategy from World War II, but now on a genuinely global scale because the Soviet Union couldn't stop you and China was too weak and India was too weak to really do anything. So you get this moment of, you know, what Madeleine Albright called and then people forget in an interview with Matt Lauer in nineteen ninety. 98, uh, she said the U.S. was the indispensable nation, and and if you actually go back and read it, it's really astonishing. She basically says the U.S. could like do what it wants in the world um, because. Americans like see farther than other people, Mm -hmm. so it's this like moment of incredible uh, hubris. Uh, I'll use my Trump voice, hubris. That's my natural accent. Um, (laughs) And I I think that um, both of those moments, sort of the World War II moment and the Cold War, post Cold War moment, and I mean this is you know betrays my Marxism here, and I follow the eternal science of historical materialism. We're based on material realities. After World War II, the United States was the only. I we don't love this language, but I'll just use it, quote unquote, developed nation. Um, really in the world that hadn't committed self-immolation, um, whether you're talking about Japan or Germany um, or other, even you know France and, and UK were really battered. The Soviet Union was really battered. So in 1945, the US is just like ridiculously powerful. I have the exact statistics in the article, but the one that I like to use, it had like half of the world's exports. Um, then in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and you get the US and you, you added sort of G7 allies, which it had really... Basically, they'd become part of like the polity. I mean, I think in a thousand years, when people look back on this moment, they'll be like Western Europe and the US were kind of like one polity in a real sense. They were also like overwhelmingly dominant. I forget the statistics, something like 67 percent of global something, something crazy like that. And that's this is not possible anymore um you think about the quote-unquote rise of china or or i I don't like a lot of these narratives because i think there is a lot of orientalism in them you know the quote-unquote rising tigers and things like that even though they do refer to ireland as the celtic tiger but that's just sort of like orientalism west because ireland (laughs) is the first colonized population but i'm just going to use that language so people please don't get mad i understand the problems with it Um, but like it's that 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 sort of domination is just not possible anymore okay so that's the background do you guys have any questions about that or should i now like lay out the
0: two sides um. Yeah, Tammy. Do you have any questions here? Or um, I think like I think that we should start our conversation once you've laid out the two sides, right? Okay. So yeah. very briefly, right now, um, I think neoconservatism. Um.
1: Okay. Let's uh, very quickly. So in in World War One, Woodrow Wilson creates this thing called liberal internationalism, and the idea is pretty simple. He's very much informed by progressive era ideology, which is like we have these new things called the social sciences. We have these new things called like Fordism and Taylorism, and we're going to be able to like manage domestic affairs and political economy. And Woodrow Wilson basically says that for an international scale. And he's very informed by theories of race. You know, this is the whole, you know, what, what the mandate system in the League of Nations and the, the sort of created a creation of ethno states in Eastern Europe. And so this is a, a thing that's very deeply informed by race. But the the basic proposition is that you could control international affairs with techniques and technologies of modernity. Um, And this is, I think, the underlying ideology of uh, the post-war American empire. The idea was that you'll be able to really manage international affairs in a real way. But I think in in 2022, we could just look back on that and say that that was totally wrong and total bullshit, um, that you can't actually manage international affairs like people presumed, um, that the United States actually caused an enormous amount of death and destruction abroad, and even though it did end a major, there were no major wars in Central and Western Europe, that is like a real quote unquote accomplishment. But I do think that 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 was really dependent on the exploitation and oppression of the, what, you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein might call the periphery, right? So the imperial metropole is pretty good if you're in France for the American century or the UK or Western Germany. It's it's pretty shitty if you're in Vietnam or Korea. Um, So I think that, that there's actually a necessary connection between the sort of exploitation of the uh, periphery and the benefits of the core, but today you have one side: these liberal internationalists who still argue that American hegemony is a choice. That if you know you just get it together enough, the United States is going to be ever for able uh, going to be able to forever dominate the world. And particularly, this comes up mostly in relation to China: that the United States is going to be able to arrest. China's quote unquote rise and remain hegemonic in East Asia. And this is the liberal internationalist position in D.C. This is the default position of Washington, D.C. And I would just add for people who might be curious, neoconservatism is, I think, just a particularly aggressive form of liberal internationalism that emphasizes unilateralism and the military as opposed to multilateralism in the economy. But they're very related. Um, On the other side, you have a group called Restrainers. And this is someone like John Mersheimer who got like semi-famous talking about Ukraine. He was semi-famous 15 years ago. He wrote a book with Stephen Walt called The Israel Lobby. Um, So the the Restrainers uh, have people like Mersheimer, who's like a quote-unquote realist, um, people on sort of the libertarian right Um, and also people that I would define as being on the socialist left. So it's a broad coalition of uh, anti-imperialists. I think probably just because it's kind of more popular amongst people under 40, there's more socialist left people under 40 and more libertarian people over 40. Um, So it's kind of a broad coalition. And, and, And basically, they argue that the United States should, quote unquote, restrain American power, that the U.S. shouldn't do a lot in the world. Um, I think for my, uh, and here from my perspective, restraint is good, but I also think we need to talk about, uh, we need to start having the discussion about uh, reducing actually American power and what that would mean. And we could talk about that in the context of Ukraine because it's a particularly hot button issue. But those are basically the two sides that I lay out and I say restraint is better.
0: Great. Thank you. Like that's actually, that's very, that's very efficient for like something that's very complicated, you know? And, um, although I think that in the essay, you laid it out pretty, you know, like yeah. in a, in a translatable way, like in a way that like, I was like, oh yeah, I get all this and I've heard of some of these people, but I don't really need to know all of them. Okay. Tammy. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's start this off.
2: Yeah. I think that was great. And we should mention that we had Nita Crawford on the show some months ago, who I think we could also say is sort of in this kind of restraint camp. Um, But Danny, could you talk a little bit about um, so the rise of China piece on this? Like you mentioned at the top of the essay, that maybe the two things that have kind of shaken up some of the liberal internationalist understanding are the rise of China and the Trump years. Why those two things, and how do they interact to change or challenge this notion?
1: So, um, the Trump thing, I think, is pretty clear. Like, there's, as as you could probably imagine, there's a hearty dose of American exceptionalism embodied in the liberal internationalist idea. You know, like Madeleine Albright just saying, we're the, uh, you know, the indispensable nation, indispensable to what that sees farther, right? So, I think Trump is, that's just um, an effect of of the broader uh, um, impact he had on sort of liberal self understanding. That maybe this country, you know, the arc of history necessarily doesn't always bend toward justice. Maybe there's actually a a, a venal core to American politics, like a Trump being a PT Barnum esque figure, you know, mis- mixed with a little bit of Berlusconi. Um, I think really affected <laughs> uh, liberal self understanding. And and yeah. you know, if you're if you're claiming that your nation should dominate the world, you got to have a pretty healthy self understanding. So um, I think that was crucial at home, but also abroad. I think even though Trump really didn't do very much when he was actually in power, and we could argue about why. Mm-hmm. Um, just the fact that someone who won the American presidency was able to be so skeptical of NATO, um, was able to be so skeptical of US alliances abroad, I think helped engender. Within foreign capitals, the recognition that the United States isn't going to be here forever—that things yeah. are actually changing—it's not 1945, it's not 1991—that um, that there's going to be a, actually a, a global transition. And I—I I don't think people believe it's going to. Uh, people in foreign capitals believe it's going to happen in five years, but probably in 25 years, that the United States is not going to be around in the same way. So it's a, it's a generational thing, but people are waking up. Um, and then just the mere fact of the again, I don't want to say rise of China because you know it's like. Rise in relation to what, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. China's yeah, kind of entrance... been here before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So China's like. 21st century entrance into the the club of global true superpowers also suggested that the united states is not going to be able to arrest other countries um increasing their power um and and this is particularly i I think it's happening first in east asia because east asia is far from the united states you know the the u.s is less deeply rooted in that region than it is in europe you know the u.s is a ultimately a european formation it's also far um so you're going to see it it's more difficult for the us to project power right the us has to be in other con- in other sovereign countries like korea like japan in order to prote- uh, project its power there so it's happening first there but it's happening first there in a way that's going to signal larger declines in american power broadly, or so at least people think. Personally, I think we live in kind of a strange moment in history because due to technological advancements, you actually don't need very many people to run an empire. It's not like Rome or Britain when you have like social dislocations at home and like everyone's going crazy and like you literally like can't gather enough people to send to the Raj or something along the right, right. You have
0: to send George Orwell <laughs> to
1: like seven different countries. Right. right. You don't need that anymore. You have people in Colorado policing, you know, Pakistan with drones, right, or something right. along those lines. So, so that's actually really unique. I think you could actually have for the first time almost total collapse at home and a pretty strong empire abroad. So we're we're a bit entering new historical territory. But I don't think that the United States is able going to be able to dominate in quite the same way that it has.
0: Yeah, that was actually my question that uh, that I had reading this. Right, the one thing where I was like, okay, I just need to ask this because. I agree that, like, uh, that. I think the perception of America has taken a huge hit that it wouldn't have if, say, Hillary Clinton was president, right? Like, if we, if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, then I don't think we have any of this. Like, I think that we still have people who are going to be restrainers, or people like yourself who are saying that there should be a scaling back of American power. But like, you'd be pretty marginal, right? Like, you know, like it would be, um, and that, uh that basically this idea of liberal internationalism would still be like the, uh, I don't know, I would think it would still be by far the, the like you you say at some point, like it's like 90% of people believe that like the United States should, um, you know, should have a role in all of this type of stuff, right? But it would be, um, and I think internationally, I do think that probably there has been some questioning about whether how long this will go for. But I guess like my question then is just that, you know, like in terms of military might, right? Like China, you noted in the piece of China has like the biggest standing army and that China is a big power. And you can see that, um you know, in places like Africa, where they have like, you know, influenced quite a bit of, or they have exerted quite a bit of influence. But, you know, in reality, right, like uh, outside of the idea that maybe people think that America will at some point end, right? Like, um and the fact that, Things like the 2008 crash or whatever are going to obviously sort of shake the confidence of the economy in the sort of always grow American economy. From a military standpoint, like, you know, like how much is the United States actually reduced at this point And how much do you think like people are, you know, saying, well, maybe there'll be an end to this type of domination? It hasn't really reduced at all. It's only increased. I mean, I, I would say that still,
1: by far, liberal internationalism is the major ideology of both the elites and the public. Um, I just, I, I was using the piece to sort of argue that that's bad <laughs> and, and right, that right, the, right, the right, basis right. <laughs> for that power. What, what I, um, if I were to like predict what's going to happen, it's that they'll, the U.S. will not make any changes. We'll continue to increase our defense budget. We'll continue to do all of these things, and then at some point, China will do something dramatic. Whether that's literally attack Taiwan or something else, I don't know, but China will do, China will do something dramatic. The United States will not fight World War Three over something like that, which is peripheral to its interests, and then you'll just have like total chaos uh, when that happens. What what I would say is that the United States should recognize that the material sources of its power. Um, are decreasing. Again, I don't think this will happen, but this is my normative claim, and should do something like foster a security transition uh, transition yeah. amongst allies in Japan and South Korea. That's right. not going to happen. If, if, from like looking out today, it's just going to be... Keep on stumbling along inertia until there's some dramatic thing, and then things will be worse because the United States didn't plan for it. That's what I think. What will happen now in terms of Clinton? I still think you'd see a rise of restraint just because of like people under forty have only seen the American Empire fail time and again. Um, it probably wouldn't be published in the New York Times, but I do think that there is actually a general a generational transition. You know, I wrote an op-ed in twenty in 2018 about like a left approach that was published in the Times. That was only possible because of Trump. They never would have published me um, if, if that was Hillary Clinton. But there is a generational shift. The problem, though, is that the smartest thing the American state ever did was end the draft, because basically by removing the bourgeoisie totally. from any, right, any right. anything, you know, from any damage of empire, you could kind of just run it forever, you know, which is why the second Obama won, you, you saw like the quote unquote anti-war movement like immediately dissipate right. because it was mostly a partisan thing. It wasn't actually an anti-war thing because Americans are just fine with war because the bourgeoisie was he again isn't really affected by it so again jay i I mean i just don't think it's going to happen even though i think it should
0: (laughs) right 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 the ukraine part of it is interesting to me too just because like talking to some of my normie friends right like who are not interested in any of this stuff but they were they watched the first two weeks of ukraine and like everybody else and they're very affected by it and the response i would say i would most like if i had to encapsulate it in one one statement it was just like well, I don't think we should go to war, but why can't we do the thing we used to do? <laughs> you know, and if you ask them to define what is the thing that we used to do, it would they would basically just say go to war, you know. But like, it was interesting to see that conflict, right? Because they did not want to sort of say we should we and like these are people who um, are very deep thinkers in other ways, but are people who are mostly just like people who are following politics as it comes up in push notifications on their phone, right? and it was interesting to see that they actually had somehow been pressured socially or whatever politically or through an understanding new understanding of history to understand that this should not be an intervention whereas i do think that like 10 years ago all those people would have pushed for intervention you know they would be like oh we got to we you know like we're the we have to be the policemen of the world you know like putin is is going to like take over all of Europe like any sort of fantasy that they might have had right like they would have believed every single fantasy that was pumped out to them and they would have said all right well you know this is the you know like some other person you know (laughs) like some poor person needs to go and die because of this you know not me but like somebody else needs to die but now they don't you know um but they you know they still feel the outrage it's like somewhere in the middle right like they're in this like kind of like uncomfortable space I don't know
1: and and that's particularly interesting um, because Americans are taught, particularly Americans who go through elite institutions, are taught to have like opinions on the rest of the world that's not true in other countries. You know, I see it as someone who's been basically in education their entire adult life. Like how many classes are are like American kids asked to like declaim about international politics or what the United States like should or shouldn't do. Right. So that isn't a facet of American imperialism, which I think is being expressed in like all those discussions about Ukraine and with your normie friends. It's like they feel compelled or they feel a right to like talk about like international politics writ large which is really wild if you think about it you know if, if you're in other countries you're not necessarily taught that way so I think it, it will require not only policy changes but almost a total transformation in how Americans understand themselves uh, and their relation to the world um, which has which has been taught to them since 1945 and this is something that I think actually crosses you know boundaries of difference it crosses racial lines it crosses class lines it crosses gender lines and things like that Americans really like feel they should have an opinion on the rest of the world which is kind of strange
2: but don't you think that's true in post-colonial or other imperial seats i mean i think chinese people talk about that like what should china's role in the world be i think like to some extent like i even see that in korea as like a kind of discourse emerges around korea as a kind of american sub-empire in southeast asia about like how should korea act towards its neighbors so i think that and you know i could see that conversation in france about like what is their responsibility in africa so i think to some extent like that any, any sort of thoughtful person who has lived in a, in a colonial place or a colonizing place will have that conversation, but I get what you mean in terms of the way that that is sort of refracted through exceptionalism in our situation, but I think I would it's a broader that- conversation.
1: I would say the valence is slightly different in the United States because it's about what the United States should do. And it's not just like, should we send aid? It's should we intervene militarily? That's not really being said mostly in France. Sometimes a little bit amongst like the far right, but that is not a conversation. Oh, and, <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and occasionally when they're talking about North Africa, like things get when particularly when for like relation to former colonial territories. Um. So it's more restricted, I would say, uh, in other countries. The United States like views the globe as its purview. That is unique. And the valence, I do think, is is different. Just because it's a global empire, it has 750 million, million, it can intervene. That's right. You know, France and South Korea can't. They just flat out can't do the same thing. So the valence of the conversation is, I think, different, even though it it is on a scale of like, what should my country X do to country Y?
0: Like, well, force BTS to cancel their concerts and.
1: Right, (laughs) right, something like that, right? That's a
0: lot different than bomb Libya. No,
2: but I mean, yes. Although I would say that that has set up a certain pattern for the behavior of regional powers. So I mean right, right. yeah I mean that's a sort of different conversation but like Korea is a huge arms dealer now but it's selling right. arms to all these people in Southeast a- Asia and the Middle East what does that mean right and so from I think leftists in South Korea are also having some of these conversations absolutely but yes, of course yeah, the yeah. power scale is different
1: yeah. yeah and and I mean like uh, Israel produces a lot of surveillance technology right yes. and you have like these various nodes of empire yes. that that sort of like serve as 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 almost orbital functions of the of the major Imperial metropole that they're connected to. I think so. I
2: think there is a sort of yeah a patterning there.
1: Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly with countries like South Korea, which are so connected to the United States militarily and have been so connected for seventy years. Same with France. You know, Mm -hmm. like like the the closer you are to the metropole, I would say the more likely you are to have conversations like that. Right. You hear it less in Mexico, for example, a lot less. You hear it less in Argentina. Um, You hear it, but in you know places that essentially serve like a korea's arms dealer you know it's like so connected to that but yeah i agree for sure japan too
0: is there like um <clears throat> you, you sort of mentioned this moment now that we're in where you feel like there's a shift right like we talked about this a little bit beforehand right and that this is a time where a lot of things could change in a way and that doesn't really take a lot of people i mean you think about it, it's like that moment you talked about where it's like francis Fukuyama. Or, Wolfowitz or whatever the neocons like it's not a lot of people at that point right it's just people who are extremely influential and they're all friends and there's like nine of them right and they just (laughs) but they have this profound impact on on the world right and now um I imagine that like within any type of idea of how things can change that like that has to be the path right like you're not gonna be able to create like a whatever like a mass propaganda machine that Convinces people that American empire is bad, right? Like that's on the left, we just don't have those types of resources, right? Like it has to be some sort of like takeover of some sort of elite institution or something like that. At least in my mind, right? Like that's the only way that it could possibly happen, and it probably does have to be something like you talked about, where it's like some old people like Mearsheimer, and then some young people on the left, right? It can't just be like people on the left, or else it'll be dismissed by. Everybody, and then it'll, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, right.
1: I think it's a, the the only possible way, and I, I think it's a, it's still quite a long shot. Is sort of a Leninist cadre strategy, um, because foreign policy and economic policy also have been so disconnected from mass politics that they're actually um, open. To that sort of cadre formation. I think it'll be very tough because that like the people who who are allowed into those positions under a meritocratic system are the people who are formed by hyper elite institutions, which are like so embedded in the ideology of the imperial state. Um, but in theory, uh, you could have a Leninist strategy work. And, and I think you're kind of seeing it a little bit with the Quincy Institute and defense priorities and places like that, but they're still so Marginal isn't the right word because they they really do punch pretty high, but they're they're just unique in the firmament of the foreign policy. Right.
0: you're on the you're yeah you're on the cover of Harper's, you know. So like, that's, no, but I mean, like you know, and, yeah, and, so, no, and it's seriously true. actually right. Like, at what point would that argument be on the cover of Harper's if not at a um, you know of, of a national magazine if not in a moment where there's some additional support for that type of argument. Whereas I think in the past there, it would, it would just be, I don't know, it would be in a small left journal, right? Like um, Truth Out or something like that. Tammy, I, you know, I have a question yeah. for you. I just wanted to start like a conversation between the three of us, which is that like, this idea of like the low priority of foreign policy and American politics, now, this is something that you and I talk about quite a bit. And I think that it's something that you like me as like a foreign policy dummy, right? And somebody who's just like, well, what's happening in Indiana, right? Or like what's happening in Rio Grande Valley, right? Um, Like it's something that I try and, you know, I try and like, like I want to be more focused on that. And yet like it seems unnatural, especially for somebody like me, whose job it is to pump out two to 3,000 words a week about my opinions. It's like, I know what will get traction and what won't, you know? And if it's like, Generally, it's like I mean, I found that like the more like, I'm going to write about. I watch Minions with my kid this weekend, I'm going <laughs> to write a lot that.
2: of Minions discourse right now.
0: I'm going to write about Minions. It's going to. I bet it'll do gangbusters, you know. But like, right? <laughs> but like, foreign policy is just going to flop, you know. Like anything that I talk about in terms of foreign policy is just going to flop, you know. And like, now am I asked to? maintain traffic goals or whatever no but obviously everybody thinks about it you know and i'm just talking about the media here right like and the media is a reflection of the american uh this is why capitalist media will never function i totally agree (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, it's <laughs> just like well, I don't know, like I, it, like I could just like kneecap my own career and just write a lot about foreign <laughs> policy. <laughs> very you
2: difficult. can mix it in though, Jay. I think you have enough uh, goodwill with your
0: readers. That's <laughs> well, yeah, true. But Tammy, all right. So, like from your perspective, right? You also as a journalist writing for like a national platform right like how like why why do you think this is why do you think we've reached this place and was there ever and danny maybe you you also can add some insight was there a point where like foreign policy was like a large part of the of the or at least a larger part of the national discourse so yeah tammy go ahead
2: yeah well i mean i think i agree with danny's invocation of the end of the draft and the emergence of I guess what people call like the mils of divide or the military civilian divide, where there's just complete two completely different populations that are engaged essentially with the most important thing about foreign policy, which is whether or not our people are going to get killed. And I think without that, it's very, very hard to engage people. I'm, I think on the show, we have previously shouted out some of the grassroots groups that are trying to make a connection between how people feel and what places like Quincy are trying to do. So like this emerging group, dissenters, which is coming out of the Sunrise Movement, which is trying to work on foreign policy on college campuses and among youth, adult young adults, right? Or you know, win without war. Some of these groups, you know, Code Pink in some of its better instantiations is <laughs> also doing this, um, you know. But I think it's very, very hard. I've been doing a little bit of work on this. Because I think I mentioned to you guys both that I've been trying to work on this book about the U.S.-Korea military relationship. And, um, you know, like around during the Vietnam War, there was this incredible like coffeehouse movement, which you guys probably know about, where like veterans and people who were like, you know, uh, conscientious objectors were hosting essentially like coffee shops on and off military bases around the country to try to get people politicized around this stuff. So something like that is, is kind of inconceivable in this moment. You know, I think both because of this separation and also because of some of the technological stuff that Danny raised, where we're outsourcing, we're doing the sort of drone management from Virginia, right? So none of this stuff is kind of like intimate or shared.
0: Wait, can you talk about this coffee shop movement a little bit more? Yeah, just, sure. Uh, and just a shout out: David Parsons, uh, host of
1: the Nostalgia Trap, wrote a book on the coffee house movement. Oh, really? So okay. if anyone wants to right. yeah. uh, check that out, yeah, it's 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 really interesting.
2: It's it's yeah, I've been looking at it just a little bit around the base that I grew up near, which is uh, Fort Lewis McCord in Tacoma, Washington. But there, for instance, there were a bunch of guys who had either been through the military already or had been conscientious objectors or or were just activists who against the war who were hosting literal like coffee houses. They also had coffee house newspapers where they would talk about America's war crimes and things that were going on in Vietnam to try to educate soldiers and other military personnel. Um, I just cite that as something that was visible, had a sort of mass politics around it, you know, mass, I mean, in the sense of it incorporated a lot of people of various different socioeconomic and racial backgrounds. It wasn't necessarily like the thing everybody was reading about at the time, but it was felt, you know, and I think, um, yeah, it's, I mean, Maybe we had a taste of that in our generation, marching against the various wars in the Middle East. It's not like we haven't been engaged with that. But I think on a sustained basis, um, it hasn't felt as intimate. And, right, and, and even if all, you yeah, go ahead,
1: and, and just quickly, even if you think about Vietnam, the height of that movement was 68, 69, 70. And what yeah. that essentially affected is just you, the war is pushed to bombing. You know, you start you have less soldiers on the ground and then you start bombing more and then the, the movement slowly dissipates over time. Um, so there's also just like that. I, I think people romanticize right. the Vietnam War era a little bit um, because it was such a formation of our pop culture. And just, Jay, to what you answered, yes, Americans, there are moments when Americans care about foreign policy. It's when the country is at war and particularly in the late 40s and 50s, a lot of discussion about foreign policy It sort of dissipates after Kennedy a little bit.
0: Yeah, and during world war think,
2: one too right when like we had mass left movements like there was a real like scrutiny around like what are we doing here
1: yeah particularly deb's yeah and the socialist right. party and deb's is of course arrested and yeah the, world war one is also a big moment because that's a real liminal position because it's after the 1898 before world war Two. it's like what is gonna there's still like a, a memory of like don't become involved in european affairs in like a very that's big right, way yeah. which dissipates over the 20th century
0: I I only thought about it because there was, a, I saw this conversation on Twitter and I don't remember who it was, but it was like some, you know, some people in our Twitter world when they were talking about whether or not people today or young people today knew more about what the U.S. had done um, in Latin America, right, um, than, new, than like 15, 20 years ago. And there was some disagreement about that. And my sense was like, I don't think. I don't think so. You know, I think that maybe 15 or 20 years ago, like more people are reading, like, I don't know, for example, like Noam Chomsky or something like that, right? He's like sort of the celebrity public intellectual. And that's like half of what he talked about, right? Like, like, like I don't know. What's his, his most famous book? I guess like it's got to be like manufacturing consent, right? Like, half of that is just about like, you know, stuff that the United States did in Latin America, right? And I think that it must have been a much bigger part of the conversation. I don't really remember because I was so, I don't know. I wasn't that young, but I was like 17 years old or something like that. or. Maybe younger when that book came out, but uh, when did that book come out like late eighties, I think right, oh, yeah. so I was like nine or something like, yeah. that. yeah, so um, I don't know, like it does seem like it's it's that less people would know. it's just that I think that what has happened is that the people who would have always known have like a, a slight, way have like a bigger platform just because of social media basically, right, and that that's the only that's the that's the difference, but I don't know how much it pervades beyond that um mm. but well, uh, yeah.
2: I was going to also say, Danny, you wrote this thing a few months ago on mass politics. And I think this might be a little bit relevant here. Do you want to just say quickly what what that was and how that relates to our understanding of foreign policy or our engagement with foreign policy?
1: Sure. Uh, and I was also using it more broadly, so like we could argue yeah, about that. For sure. But um, Nirvana, uh, right? which might be fun. <laughs> but like mass politics doesn't just mean a lot of people coming together to do politics, right? Yeah. It's it's a particular thing that arose in the 1920s, related to an almost corporate vision of society, which is that there would be this thing called the mass and that they would have an effect on the policy direction of the country. Uh, and I think basically the story of the 20th century, particularly the story of American liberalism, and and I would say liberalism probably writ large, I know more about Western Europe, I know less about other countries, so I'll just keep it confined to the United States, was to effectively um, cut off at the knees the ability of the mass to affect things. So if you think about... Um, the New Deal, right? The New Deal has two parts. You have the the one that everyone likes in the 1930s with the WPA and everything, and like we're going to get out of the depression and put people to work. Uh, but then you have the less talked about one, which was the Second New Deal. Um, that's a th- but which was, Let's just say another New Deal in the late 1940s, which is the creation of another set of alphabet uh, soup agencies, the National Security Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Department of Defense, and things like that. And that was effectively created for the purpose of ensuring that ordinary Americans don't have a say— over what the United States does in the world, right? Like Jay was saying, it's an incredibly cloistered community. And I actually think the story of the administrative state over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries was just that 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 happening in different, more and more spheres over time. Right. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that everyone feels particularly... Um, Messed up right now, particularly weird right now because, as, as I say in the piece, like we all we do is talk about politics. Jay, you're producing thousands of words of politics. I produce thousands of words on Twitter. Uh, we're constantly talking about politics, and we have absolutely no impact on what happens. Look <laughs> yeah. at Roe v. Wade. Look at student debt. You know, look at look at all, you know what the Supreme Court is doing. So I think that 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 people. And, and I think we on the left and, and Tammy, I, I feel for, please disagree with me. I think like we, we we say, like, let's organize and and all these things. And I think that's crucially important. But I think that has to come along with like a very harsh sort of power mapping of how how things actually function in American society. And I don't think we have that. Um I think we're seeing like maybe some some things, particularly in Amazon and Starbucks, which which is the unionization of these like incredibly large corporate formations. Um, but I think we're starting like pretty, pretty low on the scale, um, and particularly when you're you're reading what people who are seeing the emergence of mass politics were saying in the 1920s. It's like the mass was supposed to have like a direct say. And that just is not happening. That is just like flat out not in any way, shape. And there are several studies shown that like when elite and public opinion disagree, the elite opinion goes, you know? And so that's what I was saying. And I think people maybe got a little mad because they thought I was saying like, it's the end of people, large amounts of people getting together to do politics, but that's not what mass politics is actually supposed to be.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, Tammy, what do you think?
2: I mean, I wish I could disagree. I do, you know, I do, I guess for my I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had a lot of conversations recently with people who have, yeah, sort of put this challenge to me of like, well, what are the formations on the left that can do anything? You know, and I think like the most powerful probably are the labor unions is like some sort of labor movement broadly construed. And so for me, I think in my own personal life, like trade unionism has been a site through which you can do a lot of different kinds of politics and try to create something like this. But it's it's still tiny. And it's not, and how do you, you know, even if you have like an organized trade union movement against war, like how do you get Halliburton to listen to you, right? There isn't really a channel. And I don't know if that, yeah, I mean, I think that that is a huge challenge. I think it, as you were saying, it does have to do also with the proliferation of the government regulatory apparatus that sort of, you know, funnels all of this, that constrains all of this. Um, I guess the conversations that are being had on the labor left right now are also in this vein of it feels like a little bit of a tipping point or destruction point and so maybe something new will come out of that but there but it's ultimately quite a discouraging picture i think yes yeah, I, I don't you, disagree with
0: that you mentioned in that um in that essay which i um you know is on uh, fx.substack.com um which is that and this is something I think about all the time. I thought about this for the past, like basically since Ferguson, right? Which is just that you have these massive, massive outcries, right? And you have mass, mass protests around the United States, starting with Eric Garner and Michael Brown, right? And in cities across the country. And, you know... I don't know, I've mentioned this a lot on the podcast. My job for many years is just go to every single one of those, you know, and you see like and there, you can't help but be swept up in the motion of these things. Like it's an amazing thing to be on a picket line or at a protest where and you feel a type of catharsis and that you feel a type of hope out of this. Right. And then you you see like the police tear gassing or beating people. And then like it confirms in people's head that you're correct. And then you have all this culminate, right, all this sort of social media, all this Internet um, stuff where people are sharing images of police brutality that are happening in response to protests about police brutality and that those have big effects on public opinion. I do think that that's true. But then like the the, the it used to be it seems like the sort of swings in public opinion would change the way that politicians did their politics cuz they were afraid, right? <laughs> and now that doesn't happen, right? You have like like so the, it's like I think that when people say like oh well the 2020 protests, which are like the biggest in American history, didn't change anything. Right. I think they're probably fundamentally correct. But I don't think I think that the difference is that, like, at some point, the Democrats like back in history or whatever would have been like, whoa, there's a huge swing in our constituency. We should listen to them. Right.
1: Because there wasn't an
0: administrative state. I mean,
1: if you're talking about the 30s, there's barely an American state. You know, like that's what people don't get. Like the the context has totally changed. Right. And if you want to actually change things, you have to take that context seriously and see how power actually functions. It's not 1935. It's not 1946. Right after World War Two, you have a ton of labor things. And this gets us a lot of things. Doesn't get us uniform. What it does is gets healthcare attached to employment. Not good. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and also the labor movement immediately aligned with the Cold War state in the late 40s and early 1950s. I mean, it was Um,
2: strong because of war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people, you
1: got a bunch of pissed off people who know how to use weapons, you know, coming back home and people are freaked out because look what happened in Weimar, Germany with a bunch of pissed off people who, who needed to use weapons. But the context has totally changed now. Um, And I think like it just, you have to be, if you you actually care, I think of the problem on the left, and this is going to get people mad, is that people like identify with it. You know, as like literally an identity, like a sports team in a sense. Right. And they so to even question that. it is to question their identity. And they get really mad when it's really what you should just be doing is having like a super hard analysis of how power actually functions. And I don't hear a lot of discussions about that. I just really don't. I hear a lot of like pay-ins to like noble failures and movements, but I don't hear a lot of like really hardcore strategic thinking, at least amongst the cognoscenti.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, it's be, you know, like that. It's just been a long process for me to realize the, to, to basically just say like, I don't know. Like maybe I still think that people should definitely f- protest for many reasons, you know. And I sure. think that like part of it is moral, right? Like, and part of it is, it is a place where new ideas emerge and coalitions can start to form. But, like, the weird thing is just right now is that, like like you said, we're just at this tiny, tiny, tiny moment, and yet the noise that comes out of it or the show of people that comes out of it is huge, you know? But the place we're actually at is, like, basically having, like, 100 what, – what is it? Like, they now have, like, 100 Starbucks places uh, unionized, right? Almost um, 200. Almost 200, right? And you have what happens at Amazon, and these are seen as, like, big victories or you get like police to wear body cameras right like and that um like it's like tiny 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 steps and i think that that's necessary but it just seems like right now what we're having is we're having huge 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 shows and then we like what that can actually functionally accomplish is tiny right and so then i think that that will Eventually, lead to a type of exhaustion, just being like, well, how how can we do more? Like, how can we do more than 2020? Like, I mean, I I was, you know, at the beginning of 2020, I don't know, like everyone was sort of saying, like, this time it's different, this time it's different, right? And you look at the shows on the street and you're like, how could it not be different, you know? And then I do think that that's just because of a fundamental misunderstanding of where we are right now. We're just like, yo, yo," like, (laughs) oh. I don't know like you know like they don't have to do a single thing that we ask them to do right and they're just not going to and like the reason why people are so mad when stuff happens like you know like Nancy Pelosi and all and all the congress people like take a knee wearing kente cloth is because like I think there is this like fundamental understanding that this is actually the best that we can do <laughs> you know <laughs> this is the most that we can get them to do um and the same you know same thing is happening right now with with uh, Dodd roe whatever you want to call it right it's just like you have like the uh, Kamala Harris being like, "Well, wh- what do you want us to do?" And then you have like uh, Biden administration people going on like Meet the Press and being like, "I don't know, we got to listen to Supreme Court, you know, like what do you want us to do?" <laughs> you <know>? are <laughs> just like, "Yeah, okay, I hear you." You know, um, I don't know. It's a it's a strange moment. It's,
2: but then, Danny, I mean, do you have suggestions or even theoretical directions in response to that? So, okay, there is this massive administrative state. There are these agencies and and sort of. You know, NGOs and think tanks that are controlling stuff that and we there's no transparency. We don't have access. So what as people who are willing to do something, would you have us do?
1: Well, start from that position, which is, I, I think, not a position that people generally start from. People sure. oftentimes so, okay, start from that the understood. tactics. Yeah. You know, like uh, people and p- I think there's also emotional identification on the left with particular tactics. I think I mean, I think that's pretty hard to deny. Um, so I would say that's not necessarily uh, the healthiest place to start. I think you have to start from the strategy and start from the power mapping. Um, but I think you just have to recognize like the the le- literal Leviathan that you are facing is incredibly powerful and that the most powerful, the most rich um, the most connected people in the country have spent over 75 years constructing an apparatus to ensure that ordinary people have no say in politics. So that's the that's the starting position. Um, and then I think you go from there. And I think uh, without that starting position, I think we're just going to continue to go in circles. And I don't. And I've been in many left spaces, and that is usually not the position that I hear. But being what is
2: the going from there? Do you think then? I mean, because it's yeah. Well, I I, I, I know you don't have all the answers, but it's do you guys do you guys cut you stuff out?
1: <laughs> no, no okay so then i i i have th- i yeah the, then i think that's I mean, for I, pe- people okay. to decide in particular in particular spaces what what they think the most efficacious um way forward is but i, I, oh, I for but for example i i mean i don't mean to sound black-pilled but i'm incredibly cynical i mean but i also think it's like in a some sense it like like, I don't think there's going to be a civil war because I don't think people are going to fight and die for things anymore. You know, like, oh, no I, I way. Think, yeah, yeah. I I, I think <laughs> like I think like all that talk is like a, a lot of cosplay and it actually reflects people wanting to live in a moment where they felt they could affect things like the 1920s and the 1930s, which were actual decades of mass politics. I think we're just going to continue on in the morass, most likely. Um, but in terms of what to do, start from the reality and go from there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Tammy, I'm interested in your thought about this where it's like, all right, so I was thinking about this because I was writing about it, Um, about like what I kept getting these emails and messages being like, you don't provide hopeful alternatives in your work. You just say things <laughs> are bad. And uh, it's like, mostly around homelessness, you know, and I, would, I like my response is always like, you do not understand how bad this situation uh-huh. is, you know, like and how sure. understaffed every single like. You want to create like some new program and say here's an idea that like five wonks put together there you'll find zero people who will want to actually work in those spaces and it'll crumble and it'll fall and you'll have spent like two billion dollars doing the whole thing most of the money is going to just go to waste you know and that everybody at some point people need to realize this right but my sense overall is that like this is my sort of sense of hope here which is just that i do think that like if this court keeps doing this, right? That basically just like putting their thumb in the eye of like popular public opinion, that more and more people start to understand what Danny is talking about at this point, that like, you know, they can just do whatever they want. And that's something I've heard quite a bit just from, you know, having conversations with people who are not in the media or not in academic or not, you know, don't think about this all the time. Their main frustration at this point is just that they feel totally powerless. Right. And I do think that like maybe people will reach that point pretty soon where they'll start to understand that and that will be a point where political political action or political possibility changes quite a bit. But that's like my that's like my answer to like being totally
2: black yeah. that
0: It'll get worse, you know, and at some point like people will just be like, No, you know, but then at the point where people say no. I don't know what they're going to do because I agree with Danny like I don't think there's gonna be a civil war you know like I don't think that like there's going to be a huge I mean I do think there's going to be a much bigger California secession movement because there's a history of California secession but but like you know like that, that's not going to happen. You, you know? might see it's liberal
1: like, yeah. federalism. That's my hot take that I've been coming right. up with in the last six, seven months. I think you'll start seeing things like that. I don't think you'll see full on secession, but I think liberal federalism is like an right. actual thing. Like Comrade Newsom might actually like do some things different than the federal <laughs> state.
0: Well, it's like I, started, I thought like during the early months of COVID, like I felt like this was a possibility because remember like all these different state clusters were saying like, oh, we're going to have a different policy than Trump right and like i was like oh well it'd be interesting if like the entire west coast just seceded from america you know but um i don't know that's like basically the only um i i you are seeing liberal federalism right now right like like you said newsom saying like you know we're gonna we're not gonna listen like i think inslee said the same thing right like um uh you're seeing the start of that but um yeah that's like that doesn't really change that much for the people who don't live in those states. Right. And um, it might just be that people in California or in New York are just like, well, I don't really care about what happens to somebody in Louisiana or something like that, which would not be a departure from the norm right now. Right. But they can just say it out loud. Um, Tammy, what do you think?
2: Well, another thing I'm keeping an eye on, which is not a happy answer, but is sort of sad presented as happy is the emergence of philanthropic and sort of NGO responses to this, which, right, which is like not a good <laughs> thing, but is the, would be, and I think it's actually quite dystopian, but again, sort of presents itself as salvific or benign in the in the first part, is the Ford Foundations and the Soros Foundations of the world essentially saying, we're gonna provide all of the abortion care that you can't get in your state, right? We're gonna fly you to wherever you need to be or whatever. So we're sort of creating these kind of privatized circuits of avoidance. Um, that, that's another thing I think I'm watching. I, I, I just want to clarify, like, I don't when I put that to you, Danny, like, I don't expect you to have all the answers for like social change. And I think like, obviously, Jay, your readers like shouldn't necessarily expect that of you to, either because that would be very sad if they were coming to like New York Times journalists for their like answers on like how to make the world better. And I don't really like solutions journalism. I think it's stupid. But I do think it's maybe the responsibility of people like us to at least set up some sort of vision of like what we want. You know, without necessarily making that connection, so we both want to identify the really truly terrible state that we are in, and then like what what it could be. And I think like in the state of what you were talking about, Danny, it's like a denuded administrative state, right? Like a shrunken one that allows for more movement and transparency in our government, more access. It's a judiciary that actually is subordinate as it should be to the other branches of government, right? So there are we do also need like a positive vision that will like inspire people, even if we don't have the connective tissue. Well,
0: I, I think, I think did that, right? Um, yeah. I'm sorry, ahead. what? Right. Yeah, no, yeah. no, go ahead. Right. Right.
2: Uh,
1: so I, I, I think that's true. Uh, I would say we also like, I think we're still in the identification moment. So another big thing to recognize is that like a big change over the course of the 20th century and the work of the historian Nick Cullither is really crucial here is that like, it's now easy to pump people full of calories, and that wasn't always true in the past so that is an an enormous obstacle to any sort of massive political change if people are able to access food um i think that that is like actually a really big thing that makes it very difficult and and and, and particularly the green revolution so i think we also when we like look at previous moments of revolution we should also recognize that Another thing is that just the literal structure of the states, you know, like America is basically now a city of it's basically like what, seven or eight mega cities. You know, you have like the Boswash corridor, you have like the West Coast corridor, you have like a couple of pockets in the Midwest and where people actually live have has actually absolutely no correlation to politics. So that's another enormous structural. It's not just the Senate. It's like literal states, you know, like people do not live like that any longer. So I think like we could focus on restructuring the very fundamentals of the American polity and recognize that this country is also strange for still using the same constitution, which is not true through like most of the countries that you would compare the United States to in Western and Central Europe. Um, so, I mean, barring a lot of sh- huge structural shifts, um, things things I think just do look pretty bleak. I mean, from it, to, to be honest.
0: Tammy, how do you feel about that, right? Danny gets accused of being blackpilled on Twitter but I don't know, I see it like <laughs> once a month or something like that. <laughs> like what's like uh I I I will say that like, you know, at least from the possibility standpoint, you know, it's hard to I I find it hard to argue differently, and yet I still think, you know, and I I don't think Danny you would disagree with this that like, you know, like the key is just to keep struggling, right? You got it, what else are you gonna do? What else are you gonna do? But like, do you think that like, uh, I guess my question is just that I do think that there is a way in which identification and sort of, you know, classifying where we actually are and like accurately assessing it. Yeah. Could be possibly like, you know, like demobilizing in a way, right? Like it could lead to like a type of despair and cynicism i certainly have thought about it especially you know around homelessness issues where i just like i'm just like look i mean i guess we could completely restructure american economy you know, <laughs> right? but otherwise it's like you know like the, i think the, the fundamental thing that people don't understand about homelessness is like it's not what you do about the people who are on the street you know it's about the people who are about to be on the street right and like there's not one thing about that right except for like you know like like COVID uh like stuff that was forced by COVID right like rent um rent holidays or whatever like that moratoriums things like that like eviction moratoriums but like I don't know and like people are like well we we don't do anything about mental health or something like that right I'm just like well that happened 40 years ago and they did nothing for 40 years and like you you think that like this small program is gonna like 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 we're we're just never gonna get there. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just
1: very quickly two finger
0: mental health? Right. To even the problem with discourse is to even
1: suggest that perhaps mental health has structural causes is considered like violence, you know? And so I think right. that, that there's a lot of also problems in just how we talk about things too that could, that could be changed. We could talk about things differently. You don't have to accuse people get like, people get so mad at me
0: Yeah, and
1: it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm on, I'm on your side. (laughs) Like, I'm trying (laughs) to look at things accurately guys. Well,
0: that part is like, that part is like, really like, obviously, like, I don't think anyone who works with, with homeless populations would say that like the stress of being homeless does not contribute to like, you know, they all say that because they've worked with people, they see it. Right. Like, um, I don't think that that necessarily means that, like, you know, like uh, that we shouldn't have sympathy for like upper middle class kids who are having mental health issues. Of course, we should, of you course. Know? But it's like, does the does the I, does the fact that you're being evicted with your family and having to move into an RV down by like the water, you know, like like or you know under an underpass, does that contribute to your mental health problems? Of course, it does. You know, like how could it not, right? Like, um, but uh, yeah, I I think. You know, I'm I'm at this point now where I just like, well, you know, like that doesn't mean that people should stop fighting, but like, you know, like there should be like an accurate assessment of some of these things. Like, I, Tammy, what do you think? Do you think it's a bit demobilizing? Do you think that like there's a, do you think that there's like a risk for that?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is like so... No, depressing. no, go ahead. No, but no, it's good. It's useful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I was going to say like, I just to... Return quickly to this as an example, like with the Supreme Court decisions. I mean, I'm in Ohio right now, and I have this affliction that you have, Jay, sometimes, which is like if you do a deep dive in a thing, you like see everything through that thing. And right now, I'm seeing everything through abortion. Well, you should. I
0: mean, how? What else? Yeah, it's better because that's what I'm reporting on, and it's like
2: obviously an incredibly visceral issue. But what I was going to say is, to me, that's like an example of a thing where things could get very bad, like people dying like a lot of people dying bad. And of course we don't wish that to occur, but I think we're now seeing a state of the deterioration or the, the fascism in our system, like get to a point where we could potentially have this be a determinative thing in our politics. And I'm, you know, I think like the abortion thing is quite interesting too because it also highlights what you were just saying, Danny, which is the power of states and, gov- and state governments. Instead of just focusing on the federal government. And so, like, when you're talking about abortion in the future, like the Pennsylvania and Ohio Senate races are getting all of the attention, but it's really the governors that
0: right. matter
2: and the state legislatures that matter. And I so I've been wondering this week about like whether we're gonna see a little bit more of a focus on state governance in response to this and whether the very serious health the life or death health thing that the supreme court has just done to us is going to shape people's opinion and send them over to the end. Tammy, Tammy, I have a here.
1: law question. Do you think we're going to see things like nullification like in the 1850s? Cuz that that was that was very important. People don't talk about it often, but like courts yeah. would just nullify judges would just sometimes nullify uh you know anti-abolitionist rulings.
2: Yeah. It's very very hard to picture, especially because of the, the conservative sense, yeah. capture of our courts. Yeah. And I think also just I was um, just listening to a thing with Aziz Rana, who we've talked to about before, sort of a left law professor. And um, just the, the structural difficulty of making any sorts of big changes in our legal system is so it just seems so daunting. And, um, and so, again, I think like with the abortion thing or other rulings coming down the pike from the court, it will probably have to take something that leads to some sort of like life or death crisis in order for something to occur, which is a horrible thing.
0: Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know. The, the, what you said about the focus on the states is interesting to me because like there is this, uh, this is where like Democrats and Republicans are very different, right? Like you have like every petty billionaire in America who like is obviously going to be um, on the right mostly, right? Like people who, I don't know, like the guy who owned Dollar General, right? Like, and you see how he basically funded every single state legislative race for the right In the state of North Carolina, I believe it is right, Um, and uh, and basically, you know, it doesn't take that much money to win like a state legislative speech. There's like a project called like the state state project, I believe. I like met the guy who ran it, but um, you know, like their idea is to try and please convince Democrats to stop giving money to Beto O'Rourke or like John Ossoff, right? Like these national uh, campaigns, and please just give that money to like some state legislator that like is going to flip something. I don't know how much success they've had in that. Uh, I thought they were making some progress, but it might just be because I had a conversation with the guy. You was know? like, well, you talked to me, you know, so maybe he's talking to other people. But um, you You're know, definitely
2: like I, late in coming to it,
0: yeah. right? I felt that way until like you know, like what happened in with the Georgia Senate seats. Now, obviously, those were important Senate seats, right? And they did that was victory in some ways. But then I was just like, well. Does it really matter when like we lost all the state legislators and they're just going to gerrymander the crap out of everything and like just, you know, like nullify election results and stuff like that? And there still is no real focus electorally or politically from the Democrat side on state on state places, except in things like except in places like New York. Right. Which is and the only reason why it seems like there's attention there is because it's like where everyone in media lives. Right. (laughs) But like uh, and outside of that, I just don't really. I just don't really see it, you know? Um, I don't know. Here in the Bay Area, there's a little bit more just because of, like, the YIMBY movement, right? And that there are some people who are very loud who are, like, trying to get people like Scott Weiner elected, right, in San Francisco. But um, I don't know. It still seems like the Democrats are totally focused on national races and not on state races. And so uh, the dynamic that you're talking about, like, I don't really see changing that much, right? Like, um, unless there is some inflection point where that, message can be heard. But yeah.
1: One thing that we could do is like the democratic party class of apparatchiks that make money regardless of whether they win or don't win is something that could actually be affected. I think like that, that whole superstructure that, you know, all of the emails that people are waking up to and things along those lines, that's something that doesn't need to exist that could actually be affected. And that almost certainly has a negative effect on politics um
0: so that's that's a, a place for obvious reform. Right, right. Uh, the consulting classes, like uh on the Democratic Party, I think in general is um a huge, huge problem, you know. Like you know, like Chuck Roca, the Bernie uh you know, guy who was the head of the I, I guess he was like, you know, he was a Bernie's almost a conciliary for like the Hispanic community, right? Like um he just always calls it like woke white consultants you know? and, I, and like that's like pretty inflammatory language for somebody who's like a Democrat to use. But I think he's right. You know, like I just think that like, you know, like you have somebody who went to even if the person is of the same race as the people that are trying to be reached, Right. Like. If if they have to like sort of clear all these kind of like you know like credentialist barriers like you know like th- there's a pretty high chance that they didn't come from that community right like that they didn't like come from the working class element of that community most likely and I don't know it's uh, it's something I'd certainly think about all the time. All right, Danny, do you want to talk about? Let's we got about fifteen minutes left. Let's talk about. <laughs> let's let's I do I can our... go for however long you guys want. So whatever. Um, I'm trying to be, to be more
2: compact.
0: Well, I got to run in a little bit too, but but I'm just
1: saying whatever you want.
0: Right, right, right. But we let's, uh, let's talk about, okay, why are professors and academics bugging out on the
1: (laughs) the material collapse of the profession? I mean, it's, it's not more than that. Like it doesn't it it effectively no longer exists as a viable for, for profession for people under 45. And that's, I mean, that's really it. Um, the, the, I think, the famous statistic was in like 1970 or something, three in four professors was tenure track. And now in nineteen and nineteen <laughs> if only in 2022, uh, it's the opposite. Like only one in four professors is oh, tenure man. track. That's it. Oh really? Yeah, that's it. Okay, it's well, totally dec- it it's beyond yeah. decimated. Okay. Like um, you are not even if and the problem is also now in the especially since COVID, but even before then, now even if you go to like the top institutions, if you go to Yale history, which was like the top institution. Um, you're probably not going to get a job, so that's why that's why historians are, are bugging out on Twitter, as it were. And so I think like, um, th- th- if there were secure jobs, there'd be less professional uh, attempts to sort of delimit the profession from other from other professions. Right. Um, but when um when when journalists like you guys or you know even other <laughs> social scientists, yeah. economists right, right. Or, or political scientists try to do history. Um, people get people get mad, particularly in terms of the, the crediting. That's become a big thing in the yeah. last few years, um, because that's the only that's that's their pay. Right. They're not going to get an actual job. They're not going to actually get material resources for this. So the only thing they have is credit. And I think that really explains ninety nine point nine percent of it.
0: Yeah, I saw yesterday, like, Quinn Sadovian, um was- like, Oh, God, reading. Quinn got pilloried, yeah. Right, and he was, was like, well, so anyone bizarre. can do history, and then th- I was reading the replies because I felt like this was a very non-controversial statement, you
2: know? Yes, exactly. We were <laughs> like, if, yeah.
0: If somebody was like, anyone can do journalism, I'd be like, absolutely, you uh-huh. know, you just need to pick up the phone and call somebody and accurately represent what they say, and then- Well,
1: well got- history is- yeah. It's like a guild without a guild. This is the problem, right? There's no actual guild to enforce anything. But I always say the academy combines the worst of feudalism with the worst of neoliberalism. Uh, And I think that you're actually- Yeah. And I think that's what you, you have this sort of mentor mentee system. There's no path to jobs. And then you get sort of the, the cutting of the humanities um, by the universities in favor of STEM disciplines or just in favor of like literally building and cost cutting. And so th- this is what you get. You, you get people who are extremely mad all the time and they have a right to be mad because no one, no, no one's going to save them. Um, right. So I think, I think that explains basically all of it.
0: Yeah, it's right. I mean, I don't know. It just keeps. Tim, what do you think? Like, it just seems to be getting worse, almost, right? Like, it seems like there's no, there is no like come to Jesus moment where people like kind of quietly huddled in the slack of 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 history professors and were like, guys, you know, like maybe we should stop screaming at everybody. It's not a good look for us, you know. My my sense of this is basically, I kind of understand because I do feel the economic precarity that a lot of people feel, right? And I do feel. I don't know it's like i remember i uh i, I actually think it's more intense for this but i spent a lot of time like with uh classical musicians for a while right and that they're, they're there's like no classical music jobs i think it's exact almost exactly like professorships where it's just like you know, like something opens up in like the, um, Oh, I don't know, like the Albuquerque symphony. Yeah. You know? They call
2: you, it winning an election. Right.
0: Right. Right. And you or, sorry. Winning
2: go. an audition. So there's right. a reason why that. Yeah.
0: Right. And like maybe one violin spot or one like French horn spot has opened up in the Albuquerque symphony in the past like 10 years. Right. And then you have to go fully willing to uproot your entire life to go play in the Albuquerque symphony. Cause it's the only way that you can actually make a living. Right. Um, and their sense is always like, I spent my entire life training for this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and at least like this real nihilism, right? It's just like, um, I hate everybody and um, and nothing is good. And I don't under, and like why did I do this right is that is that sort of the sense among historians right now? like you know, like I spent this amount of time doing this, why did I do well, this like, like how dare you like question the one thing I have
1: right yeah absolutely, and the terrible thing with history is that um. There's jobs, and they're just poorly paid. You know, right. the, the, there's been the, basically, and this has been mirroring the, the other political economy, which is the deprofessionalization of the profession, where there's a lot of adjunct jobs to get paid $3,000 a course, and you're teaching eight courses, which is absolutely terrible for students, one might add. Um, but no one really cares, again, because the university has this neoliberal, it's the corporate university. Right. Um, so I think that's the exact same reason. People spend, you know, five to 10 years getting a PhD, and then they see someone... Or they not even that they see someone, but they imagine that a journalist, you know, read their book and is taking their arguments, and so they, it's it's a it's a deep psychic wound, um, I think, because yeah. again, it's their only form of remuneration. Is that credit? Is that citation? Is seeing your name in print? So if but you that's don't get our, that, that's
0: what we say too. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. I think you see it across yeah. creative fields. Yeah, I well, mean, that's and why we fight. You're yeah, like, yeah your response gonna is always like. like-
2: like, if we buy arguments made by Bill Derizaretz or other people who have been critics of the sort of neoliberalization of the academy, we would say, like, hey, guys, like, your target shouldn't be a journalist who's getting paid $500 for this freaking piece. It's probably the fact that you have 500 provosts at your university for some god awful reason. Yeah, and and unionization...
1: It's just not going to happen. I mean, there's just no class consciousness amongst professors. Zero.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, So there's also – there's and I just gave a talk on this. And again, people got mad at me for being blackpilled, but it's just the situation. (laughs) It is just the the real – Well, what do you tell your students, Danny? In terms of what? Should they go to grad school?
2: Their future. Yeah, like Um, in history, it's – what is the advice you give?
1: Uh, f- uh find 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 yourself. Uh, I tell them not to go to graduate school. <laughs> That's what I say when they're you're independently wealthy. I
0: always say find yourself. Yeah. Well, because yeah, it's yeah. like, I mean, there's I've, no profession you know, to go into. You know, there just doesn't exist. Right. Right. I used to say like, hey, you know, like you have to understand that like the old path where you would have a job at four different newspapers and you would come up and you would have like a s- modest but livable salary you know if you're like going to go work say in like the at the in like the paper in Arlington, Texas or something like that right or like uh twin cities or something like that that you would probably be paid enough to have like a one bedroom apartment and live in a car there you know and you'd be okay that doesn't exist anymore um and yeah and but then i got tired of like sort of being so negative right and i was like it reminds me my, like doctors are always just like Oh, being a doctor is terrible. Never be a doctor. And I'm just like, actually, it sounds pretty cool to me. You know, you can pay a ton of money. You have a stable job. And like, you know, like in some ways, you're probably helping some other people, you know, like what's the problem here? <laughs> right? Like it seems like a great job. Um, So I didn't want to be like that. But that's... Uh, and so now I just say like you know you have to really love writing and you have to really love reporting and um you have to understand it might not work out for you but yeah. like if you it's just basically keep, what I say yeah yeah like right? if you just I mean, keep trying I mean, yeah. and you love it um you shouldn't shortchange yourself by not trying because you're afraid of certain things but you're the amount of time that you can try is basically pegged on how much money your parents have. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and so, like, I usually like...
2: ask them what their other sources of income are. Always. Right, like, right, right, right. so are you wealthy? <laughs> that's... I always start with that. <laughs> like, so, how's your bank account looking? Like, the other thing that I find like, fascinating I Googled about. This your, story... I
0: Googled your parents and your grandparents, and let me tell you, just go for it. <laughs> you seem okay. Go for it, man. But good
2: luck to you. <laughs> The Twitter historians thing and, sing, and the, the sort of journalist historians war thing that I always find funny, too, is that, you know, historians are obviously – history is obviously not the only humanities profession that is under assault. Like, But you don't see, like, literary critics or, like, film scholars coming out on Twitter. Oh, wait, like film how scholars battles? are. Yeah, yeah.
1: Those are effectively dead, like, even more right. dead than history. Like, the, the, a lot yeah. of those – don't even exist any longer um and that actually someone should write something interesting on this like in the 80s all the big academic celebrities were like literary exactly. people and and that's like judith I think it's Butler, and like 30 years later that does not exist like the profession like just doesn't exist anymore l- i think that's why you see less of it there's and just so more historians well
2: i think it's also because history has a particular intimacy with journalism and with like public practice you know in a way that well, yes, there was a period where perhaps film history or, you know, f- film scholarship or literary criticism had that. But, yeah, that's a little bit. De- but, yeah, every time there's like a journalist versus historian war, I'm like, where are the literary critics? Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Who even, who's even the Judith Butler of? of
1: uh it doesn't exist anymore i mean that that's you're not going to see a big theory thing i mean i think the big the big consequence intellectually of 2008 is a return to materialism um and so you really don't see any big people after 2008 because our generation like millennials and younger are just like fuck theory we're going to return to the archive and see what actually happens like the only thing that matters is the political economy um and so i don't think this is fully true so people again don't get mad but there is a there is a, a sense of like when you're materially comfortable, you could retreat more into
0: theory. I mean, I just yeah, think that, well, that's a fact. Yeah. I think that's probably how very dare true. you. Yeah. And that I don't know. Judith Butler's one of the Berkeley celebrity. You know, I have this list of Berkeley celebrities that I want to see. Like John Yu, you know, or Robert Reich. <laughs> oh, yeah. or, or, or Judith Butler. Oh my god. And I haven't seen any of them so far. I don't I think I saw Robert Reich, but, you know, like um from, from afar. But I would uh, be excited. What, to see Robert Reich? Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Well. Um... I saw Judith Butler and Wendy Brown at like a, a very hoity-toity New York restaurant like a year and a half ago. And I recognized <laughs> wow. them like I, I immediately. <laughs> uh, I think Did I'm you
2: take Wendy, a selfie yeah. from afar? No,
1: I was thinking of like, should I like take a picture? But no, I decided
0: Well, not. I I think some of it is also just because I do think there's been a movement in journalism too, right? In elite in elite journalism, to sort of talk more about history and race, yeah, yes, sixteen nineteen, of course, right? yeah, yeah, and yeah. that um, that uh, you have columnists who are very good who write a lot about American history, right, and that yeah. so it becomes part of the. And I don't think that that was necessarily true, right? Like before, like a columnist would write five times a week, and it would be like four of the pieces would just be gossip that they heard at like the bar, <laughs> at, you know, and that. And that they were just writing an engaging type of way. And there is a academic, I, I think that there is sort of an academicization of journalism that I certainly feel, That's you know. Like, I mean, I I sometimes, I, I don't know, I give a talk at Ohio State at some point and they're like, your work is very academic. And I was like, what? You know, and then, but then I thought about it and there's like, oh, these people are older and they're comparing it to like basically like Mike Rico or something like that, you know, who just be like, I was down at the bar and two longshoremen came in and they said this, this, and this. And like, it's like so entertaining, but you don't also don't know if it's necessarily exactly happened, you know. But that it's like just trying to cap- capture like a vibe within 600 words or something like that. And now it's different, right? Like people write at great length about history. They sort of do these big projects, like I don't know, like even like remember like the the lynching project that that that, that was done with like EJI, right? The Equal like like they're like people are using journalism to try and do big big. Events in American history. And I think that that's probably why some of
1: this That's meritocracy, baby. The class position, the class formation of journalists is totally different now. You know, you cannot be a working class journalist for all the reasons that we were just talking about. You had to go to Harvard or Yale or Columbia. And that that has this particular affect. It's all meritocracy, which is a perfect system and which we're all very much products of, (laughs) I
0: must say. Right, right. And then you think like stuff like, man, I learned all this stuff. What am I going to do with it?
2: (laughs) Right. Well, I think we're also trying to grasp at. Where we are, though, and try to understand that because of some of the stuff post 2008 as well. Yeah, I agree with that.
0: Yeah. And also, um, right. And it's also like In consolidation, right, where the other jobs that used to be filled with different people who could are just gone. And so the only way that you can access these places is that you go to four colleges or you know somebody, but most likely both, you know, um, because it's not like the four people, all the people at the four places are also trying to get into these places and there's actually not even enough room for them you yep. know and so you need both right. yeah. and there's
1: nothing there's no one more angry than a proletarianizing bourgeoisie and i think that that does yeah, uh, have a right. i mean that that's where revolutions come from effectively right, right, proletarianizing right. bourgeoisie and so that also explains a lot of the anger right
0: mm-hmm. well does that not give you you know to end on this like does that not give you some sort of hope for the future that you know as things <laughs> get worse right and you know i think about this myself where i'm just like well the person who like i This is where I just feel like you know, like some of the discourse, the ways in which like left discourse or even progressive discourse is just not particularly interesting to me. Which is just like, all right, well, we sort of divide all this bad thing up and we try and talk. It's just standpoint epistemology saying who is the most affected by this thing, and we should listen to that person, right? But right now, it seems like the person who's most interesting, um, in terms of how mad they're going to get and how far they're going to go in terms of like politics, are people who are you know, like sort of like, I don't know, like middle class white women, right? Like uh like in this moment and like as they feel less uh as they feel like the political process is failing them, right? As they feel like, you know, like they are also like increasingly powerless, like you know, like what happens among that right that group. And I do think that that group, right? Not just women, but like sort of middle class white people are going to feel more and more and more oppressed, right? as things go along. And maybe that is a point where things can change. I but don't that know. That like funnels them way,
1: yeah. into the proud boy. I mean, like this is the problem that could be funneled right. in a yeah. million different directions. And the lack of left-wing organization, I think is a real problem because that could very easily be funneled into reaction. And I think right, is course, being funneled yeah. into
0: reaction more,
1: more it is, than not. yeah, it
0: is, Right. 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 Taylor, like, what do the you the think about that last thought? Like, you know, like, is that our big hope is that like everything gets worse <laughs> for like, you know, um, people making $75,000 household income in, you know, in my, in <laughs> I have to say,
2: I haven't really staked my claim on those folks. I'm hoping for right. something different.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like it, the idea that they would, you know, all become socialists instead of proud boys. It seems like uh, I don't know. You know that they would blame, like, um, you know, they would end up blaming like the American imperialism instead of just blaming like the immigrants. Right? It seems like pretty far fetched. All right, I take it back. All right, look back. <laughs> Back to full black pill. Um, <laughs> all right. Well. Um, all right. Well, Danny, thanks for being on the show. Dan, right? So, how did my uh, audition
1: go? Am I am I going to be third, Mike?
0: We're replacing Am I replacing Andy? <laughs> <laughs> um, the I don't know. This is interesting. I, everyone should read this Harper's essay. I think that it is. Um, I don't know. It's just such a clearly written thing. Right. And it was just like if you want to know where yeah. you can put your effort, like, damn, I don't think I actually don't think you're all that black pill because you wrote this I'm essay. Not. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote this essay saying, like, here's something I'm actually working on that I think is a good idea and he he can save millions of lives potentially if American, you know, if American power is scaled back intentionally, right? And then it exposes all these types of things that the United States have done and that we have myths about or gigantic forget. And that that we should really think about it. i don't think that's blackpilled at all you know and i'm so, not
1: blackpilled at all and I, that right. is a You're problem getting that people perceive me as it right it's right, just right. pointing out what is actually happening that is right. the number one law of historical materialism <laughs> know your moment <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God. right but then this it's like it provides an alternative it's like something like you know something like the quincy institute that people can get involved in right or or even you know like uh, come up with their own ways of sort of understanding that like this is a key point in you know, whatever left politics that we have, which is that you have to think internationally. You have to think about American Empire. And I don't know. Like I I think I hope everybody reads it. And um, do you have anything else yeah. you want to plug? The the Substack is FX.Substack No no the I'm Substack
1: like, is American Prestige. The podcast oh. is American Prestige. It is on Substack. Please subscribe to both our free and our paid lists. You'll get all yes. this great content yeah. all the time. Too much Um, content.
0: We have a good
2: international channel also in our Discord. I'll plug that. Oh
0: Tammy, any last thoughts?
2: No. Thanks for coming on, Danny. It was fun. Thanks for having you
0: guys. Thanks for listening to the show. We do this every week. Um and this week we have our we have a new person on board as producer for the show, May Shots. Um, and uh she is in the Discord, so you can say hello to her there. Um and She's gonna help make this show much more structured and much more coherent, and I think it's gonna be great um you know like a lot of <laughs> yeah, times we you know we had like a kind of like uh i don't know almost like a uh free jazz type of thought, you know, but with less talent right but um, <laughs> so um. We're very excited to have her on board. And, um, yeah, you can support us at goodbye.substack.com for $5. You'll get access to everything uh, that we do. And you can just email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Okay, thank you uh, for being on Danny and we'll see you next time.